and welcome back to another episode of the Let's Talk Audio Podcast. Woohoo! So, on today's episode, we have the wonderful Juno Black. She is an audio-visual production expert. She's toured, she's been a sound engineer, she's been a musician. And so without further ado, we're just going to get right on into this interview. Well, uh, my name is Juno Black, and I am a multimedia production expert. That's how I like to declare myself these days. I started as a sound engineer. Uh, well, actually, I started as a musician, and then I moved to be a sound engineer uh, by the need of uh, working in an environment where people didn't really know what to do with the music that I was doing. And I wanted to be able to communicate uh, what I wanted them to accomplish sonically. And that led me to be interested in the technology of audio. I started in Colombia a a long time ago. But uh, when I played with bands, sometimes people were like, what do I do with this? I don't know. (laughs) And I tried to uh, learn more to communicate. And then I got interested in audio engineering. And that was my starting point. Uh, I realized uh, over time that uh, it was easier to uh, maintain constant work when I was uh, engineering than when I was playing music. And that became my career. I've been doing it for about 25 years now. Yeah. Cool. So it's really interesting because I first learned about you because of Willa, which we had on the show. Shout out to Willa. She actually told me to reach out to you because uh, she said that at the time you possibly might be hiring, which was like my first introduction to you. And so it's like, I only knew of you in terms of working at One World Theater. And so then when I started like actually researching you, I was like, oh my gosh, you and your world is so much bigger than like what I thought of it as. And so I was really excited while I was doing research into you and being able to like actually interview you because being a, as you call it, a multimedia production expert, first off, what does that even mean? Like, what does that look like? How does that work in terms of what you actually do? Well, uh, nowadays, all of the impacts that technology has had especially the uh, modern compression schemes for video has imploded. And uh, there is every day a new technology that makes higher quality videos be uh, transmitted wirelessly over the internet. And everybody has a device. So the demand for multimedia uh, projects has exploded. And I've been always interested in video and audio. I mean, I, I, I started working at a post-production house and that really like got me interested back when I was in Boston. And I decided to start working towards working on that space. And I opened my own studio years after when I moved to New York, I did a lot of that kind of work, uh, post-production. So people will bring videos and I still do. And I do the audio for it. 
sound design, music direction or music composition and a dialogue and editing dialogue for that and putting it all together. And I realized that that was a sphere that I really wanted, like the interaction with music with other media. So multimedia is really anything that has audio and has other mediums like video or projections. Nowadays, we have a lot of experiential events or interactive events, uh, the advent of uh, immersion, sound and visual, you know, uh, a virtual reality, extended reality. All of those technologies are going to be uh, expanding the environment in which a creative technologist, artist slash artist can produce content. I've worked in the non-for-profit uh, organization sphere a lot. So I, I've done like videos promoting non-for-profits and I love working in uh, environments that are centered into helping and promoting uh, the well-being of other people. And what I love the most is to see people, uh, present people with some kind of art that touch them and help them uh, move forward or create some sort of action. So new technologies that uh, involve all of this mixture of art, uh, design, a video and audio is what I like to do. So I produce a lot of different things, projects, uh, theater pieces, or audio music is my, my passion. So I've, I've studied music and uh, that's kind of where I center my projects in. Uh, but the One World Theater was a great example because it's a, it's a place where I had the opportunity to create in many levels and help in many levels. So that was like a, a good experience. I'm really glad that Willa mentioned me to you. <laughs> yeah, that place is a really interesting uh, theater. I I've, I think I visited it once, like just to like walk around and like see what it looked like on the inside. And uh, it's definitely really cool. So how did you, I guess, go from being mostly in production? Because time-wise, timeline-wise, <laughs> you were saying that you started off in Columbia learning and being a musician, learning audio through that. And then you moved to New York and you worked in production houses there, correct? Mm -hmm. And then you went from New York, Boston to Austin, Texas, and working in production there, starting your own business, but also doing the One World Theater. So how did you get from, let's start with, how did you go from Columbia to New York and Boston? Yeah, let's start there. Okay. Let's start there. <laughs> so uh, in Columbia... I was a, a little bit frustrated with the education. I was in school. I was a part of the first program that they had of music, modern music in a university called Universidad Javeriana, uh, which evolved and nowadays is, is very, very good. And nowadays people in Colombia have a lot of options, but when I started, there were none. I mean, most people, I started more, mostly the old school way. Like I will go and hang out in studios and I, I helped, I interned, I cleaned the bathrooms and like just, just was being like a fly in the wall, like kind of like, like looking at how people did that. But I've always been a little bit entrepreneurial. I always wanted to kind of build something because there was no really opportunity that they will hire you. 
there were like very few and they were taken by you know, you know uh, older guys <laughs> mostly it is uh, it, it was more mostly a boys club that <laughs> at the time so anyhow I created kind of like my own opportunities and uh, a Berkeley School of Music in Boston is like very good at promoting their school overseas. So they will send like pamphlets and they will do, and they did this uh, series of interviews. They will offer scholarships, you know? <laughs> so they, they, they went to Colombia and they were like, we're offering uh, scholarships for anybody that applies and does an audition. And uh, I mean, really the scholarship was they will give you summer class uh, in order to tell you that that's the best school in the world. Sorry about that. Uh, and that you're going to be the best musician if you go there. And that is going to cost you at the time $36,000 a year. Nowadays is more like 70 or 60. I don't know. It's too expensive. So I did that and I was like, I really want to go see, but I didn't understand like everything that entailed when, when that happened and the way they portray it sometimes it's like, Oh, come like you can, you know, but you don't get any support. Like, you know, besides them helping you uh, with the student visa, you know, there's not, you know, like you, they're basically, Hey, come take this class and we'll tell you that you can spend like 40 grand with us, which I didn't have. Uh, I mean, when I first came to America, I had like 80 bucks for the rest of the, my life after saving for three years, you know, <laughs> like I've been paying my ticket and paying like my first. And we live like five people in a one bedroom apartment in order for him to be, make it uh, uh, possible. So that was my idea. Then I stayed for school, but I went to a school that was a state owned at the beginning. It was, it was called uh, Massachusetts Communication College. And I applied there and then like they helped me. I transferred all of my stuff and uh, that was great until the state decided to sell most of the stakes in mixed schools like that. So the school got sold to the Art Institute and immediately they doubled the it still was cheaper than Berkeley, but they immediately they doubled the tuition. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I work a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then you're in New York. You're going to school. Did you eventually graduate then? No, I was in Boston. I, I finished uh, what is considered a degree, but I, I couldn't certify it there, you know, because of money. Like I had a payment plan. I didn't have like... I couldn't get like any federal loans or any support. So uh, I had made a payment plan with the school. So I, I was on a payment plan. This is in Boston, a payment plan. And, you know, I had finished all of my credits and I was okay, I'm ready. And they were like, well, but you still owe us $14,000. So you you need to pay all of that. And I'm like, but I'm on a payment plan. I have to keep paying you on a payment plan. I don't have $14,000 at the time. And so anyhow, I finished, but I never got my degree. Not that I needed it until later in my life. I mean, later in my life, I realized that I needed it. And I actually, like, I I'm going for my master's, like, at the moment. Currently? You know, like, I yeah, currently. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I went, I, I finished my bachelor's in uh, Southern Utah University. 
and they have right. a group. Sorry, Southern Utah University. Yeah, Southern Utah okay. University. Okay. Yeah, and they have a really good master's program, and uh, that's how I approached them. I was like, I really do want to do this master's program, and they were like very uh, accommodating on helping me certify like the credits. The other thing is like I, ha I was going for a bachelor's in arts, you know. And this master's program that I'm taking is a science bachelor, uh, science master's. So you needed like to have a certain number of classes in science. So I took those and I finished my bachelor's there, you know, which I, I, I graduated and I'm, I'm about to finish the master's. I took the pandemic time to kind of deal with it because I had been working all the time. So. Right. Wait, so why did you go back to get your master's? I mean, because you've been doing audio and all this sort of stuff for a while now. So why did you feel the need to, like, why did you have the desire to go back to school? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a mixture of things. So when I moved to Austin, part of the reason why I moved is because I started teaching audio in a school called MediaTek. It's a two-year technical school that that existed here. And I thought audio and I thought post-production and I thought live sound there. And I loved the experience. And uh, I I kind of wanted to go back into uh, being part of academia and like teaching uh, is a passion that uh, I haven't like really like done. And that experience like made me realize I really want to go in and end up teaching to be a professor in a, and I want to, I want to teach, a, a, you know, a college. Like that's what I want to do. Like do more research and teaching in a university level. So anyhow, I realized that I've done a lot, but what I want to do, I want to do it in a academic setting. And, uh, for most academia here, like nowadays, they, they, they will require for you to have a terminal degree in order for them to consider you. So uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, I was really busy. I had been, I had been working in the theater and doing my own business parallel to that. And, you know, like all live events. And I was focused mostly on live concerts and events at that point. Everything like with the pandemic, like, went off and then you end up at home. So I was like, this is the perfect moment for me to go back to school and be productive while I'm at home and uh, try to accomplish that, like further my education into a terminal degree that will allow me to uh, go back and teach and, and be more uh, prepared for a, that sort of environment. Gotcha. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I had I had a similar mindset, but then life told me no, not yet. I, so, <laughs> but you know, hey, it works. First off, that teaching thing is super cool. I always love people who can be effective teachers. I think sometimes people think of teaching as easier than it is, but when it comes to like educating other people, I think that takes a unique skill set in my mind. It does because you have to be able to to relate to people in different ways. And then like, if some people have like learning disabilities or, you know, they struggle with understanding certain, certain ideas. And so you have to present it in a different way and you have to be creative in the way that you teach. Cause not everybody learns the same way. Right. So I always have like 
I always have like mad respect for for people who want to educate others. Yeah, it is it is a, a very specific skill set, and but I think like working in the studio and producing has given me a lot of tools to deal with that aspect. Because honestly, a big part of what a producer does, like a real producer, someone who is called to say, like, you, you, you have to finish this by this date. That's what the product producer does. It's like, what do we need to p- finish this project by this date and have it done to the liking of the pl- client, the person who's putting the money to do it? you know, and to the artist that is congruent with everybody in the team. And a a lot of it involves creating teams and managing people and getting people excited about the project and and doing their role in that project. So uh, dealing with those kind of situations have given me a lot of tools to to deal with the different uh, challenges that come in a classroom. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. So I guess my Follow-up thought, though, is, okay, so you went from being at the school in Boston, and then you went to New York, and that's where you got into the post-production, correct? Well, uh, I actually, post-production brought me to New York. Post-production. So in, yeah, yeah. In Boston, uh, I had a few friends that were like-minded, and uh, uh, the three of us, well, actually four originally, opened a studio. Like we want, we really wanted to open a place and we opened a studio and it was a fantastic place. Like for me, it was like a, a really cool experience to work with people on creating our own business, but we didn't have a lot of tools to do it. So we did a lot of things that now, nowadays, like I would be more cautious about how doing it. But I think if I had the time, if I hadn't, hadn't be so naive of doing it the way I did, uh, and the way we did it, like it wouldn't have happened. So we opened this studio. It was actually like we built it in a garage in an apartment complex. <laughs> so we rented two two apartments in this complex that has this uh, separate garage. And it was like a very specific construction that was leading to like be an audio place. But uh, like you, we had like to deal with, I mean, I didn't understand how important like AC systems were for audio or presentation or studio places. And that was kind of an afterthought. So we had like a window unit with like, like a, a large window unit, like set up on the outside with like a tube kind of blocking the thing. And we tried to make it like quieter, but it was too loud. So it was really hot in there. Uh, we didn't have a bathroom in the studio because like we had to go to the apartment to use the bathroom. So if a client was like, I need, really need to, like, we will go to the apartment and like use the bathroom in the apartment. But it was a great place. And, and that got me started producing a lot of music. And that led me to produce commercials and commercial music and the commercials started uh, to come and, and, and I started to see that there was a, a lot of opportunities doing video uh, and kind of doing the whole project instead of just doing the music. Uh, also, I got into film. I really like uh, got interested in film more and technology. Like it's like the digital filmmaking was starting to come up and uh, more inexpensive cameras that had like really good quality 
So my partner and I, uh, at the time in the studio, uh, started getting more into film. He bought a camera and we started like pro- proposing and we did like a video for a ballet company and a video for like a, a adventure a travel company and that sort of stuff. And uh, that really got me into that. And then like uh, friends of mine that were in the film started uh, calling me and uh, I got into doing a lot of independent films from New York. And at this time, like my partners in the studio had left. I was the only one supporting the studio. And I was tired of being in Boston. Uh, like, uh, I don't know. I, I, to me at the time, I was like, I need like something different. Um, I, I, you know, I was dealing with like staying in the country uh, and kind of like uh, being in my uh, immigration kind of like process, which takes like, it took me like five years uh, to be able to stay here definitely. And, and it was really difficult, expensive and painful, but I did it. And I was at that time I was like, okay, like that happened. And I got my green card and I was like, I, I, I don't know, like I was tired of that whole process. You know, I had gone through a divorce and I was like, I, I need to move out. And I was getting all this work from New York. So I said, like, I'm going to New York. I have all this work coming from there. I will get more work being there. And I basically packed up the studio and moved to New York and uh, and set it up <laughs> there in a loft. <laughs> Cool. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. So then you're in New York and you're doing commercials and film and all kinds of great stuff. So then what caused you to move to Austin? Because then that became more of the live sound portion of your career, I guess. Or were you doing live sound in New York as well? And then trans- no. Uh, so, so what happened is like that owning a business in New York is, uh, it can be really profitable, but it's extremely stressful. Mm. I mean, like the overhead that you need to have. I mean, basically, I needed to come up one way or another with at least like $7,000 in profit every month for me to pay my bills. That's not anything for me. That's, you know. Wow, that's a lot of money. That's that's what you need to do. And you can do it. You know, uh, because there's a lot of business, but it's too stressful and it's too involved. And I kind of like got like tired of working so much and being so stressed for not getting as much return for me. I mean, it was professionally was like really good for me. Like I met a lot of people. I did a lot of cool projects, but uh, it was not what I wanted in my life. Uh, so there's this company that I had been uh, like in touch with and uh, they uh, were opening a new club. They owned uh, the Blue Note and they owned uh, BB Kings and they own- they were opening this new club called the Highland Ballroom. They offered me, do you want to be part of the production team there? And it was really underpaid, but I was- to me it was kind of like, Okay, I'm going back to doing live, which is a, a, a different kind of, you know, like, like it's stressful, but it's like you go, you do it and you leave and it's, 
you know, your home. Like you're, you know, you just stress on that portion and it's like done and it's quick. It's not something that is like, you know, post-production. Usually you work with the same people on the same project for a long time. And uh, you're kind of inside the studio all the time. And I kind of wanted to be more outside. I was like, I'm in New York, like I want to be outside. So I did that. And then from there, uh, I started getting hired for tours. So I was like, okay, touring sounds fun. It's something that I haven't done in, uh, yet. So I started touring. And uh, touring, uh, well, it's a different, it's something that is really cool, you know, but at the same time, it has a different set of like challenges for a person that is touring all the time. So I basically like closed my studio to, you know, like kind of like went in and rented a room and I had like all of my stuff. I sold a lot of the stuff and I had a lot of the stuff. I I was renting a room and uh, I went touring and I started touring. Then I got hired to be the production manager for a jazz education touring company. So what they do is they do projects in which they have a jazz band, they have a narrator and they have a projection uh, with a theme. And we do shows teaching kids the relationship between jazz and the civil rights movement or like jazz and like uh, the cultural evolution of America. I mean, if you ask me, I think like jazz is uh, the greatest uh, contribution to the uh, culture of the world uh, fr- that has come from America, you know? And I mean, I won't argue jazz is the bomb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, like, you know, it's, uh, so I love that job and I was touring with them a lot, you know, like we went all, all around the country touring, like usually like, you know, mid-sized to large uh, performance spaces, you know, like 3,000 to 10,000 seaters. And it will be always geared towards kids, which I loved. And it was like a great experience. So touring, I was, why do I, why am I paying all this money for a room that is empty in New York City? Like, it doesn't make sense, you know, and, and just going out and looking at the way other people live and how like the different places in the country kind of like uh, feel uh, made me realize that I was tired of being in a city where like, you know, 12 million people live in such a small space. And I needed, I wanted like nature. I wanted to be able to go out and see a tree, <laughs> a tree that's natural, that has been there, like not, not, not like an ornamental thing that has been put there by an architect, but like a place. And Austin had that feel to me. Uh, I mean, Austin was inexpensive at the time that I moved here compared to New York. <laughs> not that now is the same, but, <laughs> you know, at the time it was for me, like really inexpensive to live here. And I, I had all of those options. You you could take your bike and go on a hike and you're like half a mile from your house, but you feel like you're in nature. And And that's kind of what I wanted. I wanted to reconnect with the natural space in a way. And Austin was a good medium between like a city where opportunities were, you know, I mean, it might be a little bit misleading, but you know, you hear like, oh, it's the capital live music of the world. So you're like, okay, like that sounds for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great slogan that they've coined. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh you know what? It has been really good because when I came here, like I got the opportunity to teach and that that was something that opened a lot of mind doors for me and kind of like set the path that I'm trying to follow now. And you know, and then like when the school because that school that I was teaching closed. You know, they move, they close, they move out of Austin and, uh, I was, I wasn't going to move out, move again, you know, and I was like, I'm going to stay in Austin. I, I really like living here. I'm not going to move to a different city to keep doing this. And I got the opportunity at One World, uh, and it was like a really good opportunity to kind of reinvent a space and use all of those tools that I have learned to reinvent. And, you know, I, I learned a lot about construction and dealing with contractors and like a, setting a place up and designing like a whole space. So and then managing, you know, like the management side of it is is been really interesting and a learning experience as well. So that was a kind of like the, the track of events. <laughs> gotcha. Two things that came up while you were saying. Do you still do the touring with the, cause the jazz group you're talking about was Jazz Reach, right? That's the group? Correct. Yes. Okay. So do you still do work with them still? No, no. When I get, when I started like teaching and, and working in the theater, I couldn't do that anymore because they, they, they needed someone who, who, you know, like, I mean, we were out a lot, you know, I mean, we did usually three legs of touring every year you know, uh, across the country and it's a lot of flying. It, it was, you know, so I, I couldn't do both things and I wanted to teach originally. And then when that ended, like I took the job at one world that, that took a lot of my time, you know, I mean, because basically I still was doing my in personal individual projects, but, uh, that took a lot of my time. You know, it was, it was a big project. So at One World, when you got hired for them, you were hired to manage One World and also do a rebuild for One World, correct? Well, I, I was one, I was hired to be the production manager, but the production manager title uh, in 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 this theater, I mean, it's a very small organization, and uh, uh, there had been a lot of uh, let's say kind of like disregard for maintenance and sort of things like that. I mean, they, without going into specifics, like they, they had a, a manager that didn't work very well and they were restructuring and there were a lot of problems that needed to be fixed with audio, with the system, with like the organization, like uh, scheduling, like the staff, everything, you know? So basically like we rebuild uh, the experience for everything. So we did like new staffing, like we took it to the, to the studs basically in some places, you know, and re, rebuild all of, all of that, like the AC uh, and mainly the sound system, you know. So I designed a new sound system for the place and, uh, tried to do it in the budget that they had, which, you know, like make it work. Sometimes that's the hardest thing, and and it's it's in the same vein. It's a, a you know a place that it, that does shows, uh, but it's only three hundred people, and we bring like pretty a, a let's say legacy artists, you know, that have a following, a specific following. But the point 
of all of the shows is to fund the non-for-profit uh, things that we do. We did like a, a summer camp for kids and we did like educational things in the schools uh, with artists and, uh, you know, and the shows. So I, I went in as the production manager, but that term in that place involves a lot more than just uh, like the labor of a production manager in a regular place. Okay. Okay. I understand now. And you still work there though, right? Cause one world is still open. Yeah. I mean, like, like the, the theater, the, yeah, the theater closed for the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, some of the people close to the, uh, us and I work there, like died when COVID started. And, uh, that was really a kind of like uh, a bad thing, you know? Uh, and, but we took it really seriously after that happened. Like, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning, there was a lot of misinformation. You didn't know how bad like this was going to be, you know, when they canceled South by Southwest, like everybody was like, what is going That's kind of like the pivoting point in here in Austin. I feel that everybody was like, okay, they're canceling South by Southwest because of this, you know? And then like that happened and then we closed. So the theater closed. They let me go in the position like I had. I'm still working and contracting with them. But like, I, as I said, like I took that time to be, okay, what can I do from my house? I don't want to go and be in like as close. And still today I'm, I'm nervous, you know, now like this is the first month that we're going to have shows there. Uh, and I'm working there in a different capacity somewhat. Like I'm not doing the day to day like I used to do. Uh, I'm, I'm just like kind of contracting per show and getting the staff to do their shows and advancing their shows. More of a traditional production manager at this point, uh, but in contract, in a contract basis. But, you know, I'm still nervous when I go to shows and have a big, big, like really good mask and, you know, like. I don't know. It's a weird time for people who are uh, living in the middle of the crowds. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Especially given just like, you know, we're going through this new Delta variant and that's a whole thing. And, you know, it's just like the world of the world is just always ever evolving. And now we're ever evolving in a new way. And it's it's been um, I think it's been very interesting to to watch and to see how people one change their mindsets around different things or two how you you learn a lot about your character and other people's character when things don't go according to plan or things don't go the way that you think that they should or whatever. So I think like the pandemic has been at least for me. I mean, I've been trying to make a positive spin out of it because a lot happened and we could definitely focus on the negatives. But I think for me, one of the the positive things about that has been learning about things that I didn't know existed if things don't go my way. So like one of the things that I realized is that uh, when things don't go according to plan, I have a lot of anxiety around stuff like that. So like if things don't go like the way I thought that they should or in some like if it's like an extreme version off from what I thought it was going to be, then it'll induce anxiety in me, which I didn't realize that was like a thing. And so then all of a sudden I was like, oh my goodness, like, why am I so upset by like something that was so small? And it's like, yeah, well, it's so small because 
in the larger picture, it's so far away from what you originally had planned and considered for. So that was something that I learned about myself, right? And so that's like a positive thing because now I can learn how to address those things. So it's true. I think it is a pivotal moment uh, in history. I think like we got, we've gotten too uh, comfortable with, with our lives here. And I always thought that, I mean, I come from Colombia, which is when I was growing up, it was a complete different uh, environment. And I, I thrive to go here. And a lot of the things that I imagine I will find here, I found, but I also found a lot of things that were not like that, you know, like being confronted with that portion of the population of America that are racist is, is like, you know, I mean, I, you never like figure that out, but I think this moment has been so profound in the sense that it's bringing up all these realities that were behind like the curtain it's kind of like on us when like the 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 magician is shown you know like 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 the wizard is shown like it's nothing like uh people thought it was you know and i think this moment is bringing into our consciousness consciousness a lot of these things and it's polarizing but i think in the in reality like most people are growing spiritually, let's put it that way, like are growing uh, within themselves, you know, because they've had time to stop and not consider only like the day to day, really reconsider what they want to do. And also uh, with everything that has happened in terms of changes, political and uh, a social changes that are like bringing up all of these things that were behind the curtain. I think the future is more positive than negative. And I really think that uh, good people would prevail in this thing. And people are learning to see like, okay, we have the power, you know. I mean, we don't need to work for $9 an hour, you know, just because we need a job. Like, that's not, you know, and and I, I think it's a really interesting moment in that sense. And, but I think I agree with you. It's pivotal. And, and we're kind of like learning about ourselves and what are our own barriers and kind of like you, you can't have no other choice, but that kind of like deal with them <laughs> in your own life. Because like before, like you might have like work or might have other things that, that kind of occupy your mind and you just like kind of go and do things and kind of put it in the back. But now like you have, this all this time to think and to really be with yourself or with the people that are close to you and and kind of be in your own environment i think that's that's another thing because we've been at home more more much more so like just your own environment becomes so much more important yeah absolutely um i know like for me i did like a room makeover i'm still in the process of doing it but for me that was like one of the things that I'm naturally not a clutter person. I don't like knickknacks. Like people love knickknacks. I don't know why, but they do. And so I have never liked them, but I realized that I've acquired a lot of things that in my brain fall underneath the category of knickknacks. Now other people probably be like, that's just normal stuff that you have. And I'm like, no, but in my head it's knickknacks. So I didn't realize why being at home was so stressful to me. And it was because I felt cluttered 
in the house. And so then I went through like all of my audio gear that I had at the house, all of the like papers that you accumulate from wherever papers come from, you know, and really had to like sit down and address like these different things and like go through it. And so since I've been going through it, it's been like, oh man, this has been so much better. And so it's like freeing. But if I didn't have like this time to like sit down and address it, then I possibly could have just continued just acquiring, you know, papers or knickknacks or audio gear or whatever without any thought behind why it's here and why it makes me feel some type of way. So yeah, no, I think that's, I completely agree. Um, uh, I guess my thought though is um, something that I thought about earlier. You were saying that you were working, um, you had your own business and that you were doing the consulting and all of that stuff for One World still. So in your personal business, is it just you still or do you have a team of people that you work with to to help your clients? Like the business is me, okay. but I do have a, a set of contractors that I, that I hire for certain things. So depending on what we're doing, you know, I, I bring people in to do that project or I subcontract portions of it. You know, during the pandemic, I, I kind of like went uh, in a different direction, you know, because like I didn't want to be or have people come or go to places, you know, like we, we wanted to do. So I actually bought some equipment and, and, and started working at home. Uh, and I went more on the on the product like type of video and working on my own music. I went back to working on my own music and doing my masters, you know. So, but on my business, I started doing more of that, you know. So I bought a camera and I I bought some equipment and, and I got like some lights and a, a green screen so I, I can do like product videography and do the sound for it or or do like things that I can do at home, you know? Yeah. I mean, like that has been cool because like I've gotten like some interesting projects out of it, you know, like right now, like we, we were working on a pilot for a sustainability series. So there's going to be like a, a ideally, hopefully they'll pick it up and then we'll, we'll do like more of that. But, but it's basically talking about like how sustainability works and why it's important to combat uh, climate climate change. So I was doing the sound for that. I, I have another project on the same vein, uh, which is uh, tra uh, translating and dubbing technical videos. Uh, so I've been doing that, and uh, you know, working on 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 like doing videography for certain products. Like that has kind of kept kept me afloat. I, then I then I started when those things seemed like they were going back, you know, when when we had the vaccine and like okay, I got vaccinated, like things like kind of open up more, and uh, I started doing like more live stream, uh, and uh, one thing and 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 something that I I really encourage all of my students and people that I know in the business is like uh, create that moment in which you put yourself into a position in which you can bring people along and create something, you know? Uh, so I kind of always try to leverage all these different aspects uh, in my life 
and all the people that I know, and I know they're good at certain thing and put it together into a creation. So we, we do, for instance, I, I produce a festival, which we started like uh, four years ago. And like the first few times were at the theater, you know, and, uh, and it's called the Queer Riot Festival. And uh, so we bring like queer artists and queer vendors and we try to leverage and have a space in which uh, uh, allies and supporters of the queer movement can go and interact with queer art and queer expression. And uh, um, now last year we did it virtually. So we created this website to do it. This year uh, we're probably going to do it virtually again, but it has, you know, been hard to go back to that. But like, that's kind of like what I'm talking about, just bringing all of these things together that you have in your life and creating something that is positive, you know? Yeah. I feel like I've heard of the Queer Riot Festival before. That name rang a bell as soon as you said it. And I'm like... Why did it ring a bell? I don't remember right now, but I'm going to think of it. <laughs> Sorry, that's like a thing. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so you're talking about <laughs> bringing people together and trying to uplift them and and, and, and um, making different things in that regard. So being that you are in a position of power, okay, because you own your own business and then when you, you have these different places, how... Do you, I guess, weed through trying to uplift people, but also making sure that they're quality people instead of people who are, I guess, not that they lack quality, but they're not um, on that level for which you're trying to to make things happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, I hope that makes sense. No, it, it does. <laughs> uh, well, that ties with the education, you know. Like, I love uh, uh, giving people an opportunity to express and, and further, like, what they want to do, you know? How do I... Uh, up, I don't think I can uplift anybody, <laughs> you know? But I can work with people into giving them opportunities that they might be looking for. If it is within, like, that position in which I've gotten, in which... I have calls and I have uh, been lucky to create and learn how to manage my own environment and business in that way, you know, so I can give other people opportunities to grow within their own uh, objectives. Let's put it that way. I don't think I can really uplift anybody, you know, but because that's something that every person needs to do by themselves, you know, like you cannot uplift yourself you can give more and and try to be more equitable in in how you look uh for staff i i think like that's always in my mind you know uh like try to fight for a better pay for like processes uh that we do than i had when i was starting and kind of give training in that sense uh but uh, to me it's all proven record in order of, of making quality or having quality is a, an aspect of not controlling everything, but like letting people do their thing and then like going and, and kind of giving good feedback on how it can be better. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, like some people, like you also learn to say no to clients, 
you know, even if it didn't mean like good business for yourself. I mean, a, a lot of the times I'm just like, no, I'm not, I don't want to work with you. <laughs> you know, like that's not, that's not what I'm all about. You know, I'm sorry, like somebody else, you know, I can recommend somebody, you know, and I try to give that opportunity to people, not try to pressure people to, to be a certain thing that they don't want to do, you know, like, so clarity on expressing uh, what the needs are, what the opportunities are and what is expected. And when it's being done, like good feedback into what needs to happen for it to be finished at a certain time. And in that process, you can figure out. And sometimes you just say like, oh, okay, this person is not ideal for this, you know, uh, and one of the hardest things to learn as a manager or someone who's managing a staff or creating a, a group of people to do something is to say, okay, you know, like we got to let you go. Like you, you're not, you know, that's really hard, but it's needed. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's positive and how you do that is important. You know, how you say why, why this is happening and, and, and give everybody kind of like the same opportunity in terms of that is doing that, you know, to apply for that particular spot. Um, another thing is, is, you know, like it's all, it's all dependent on the calendar a lot of the times. Who's available to do what? You know, are the people that I know that can do that available at that time? I think like a lot of it, it's uh, good communication, you know, between parties. Like that's that's important. Good communication be- between parties is what allows people to work. And it's not always like possible. You know, sometimes there are like conflicts, you know. Was that kind of what you were expecting? Like, or is there like... I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think what you're saying is, is that you try to give people who are minorities, I guess, opportunities to prove themselves. And if you can prove yourself and, you know, you, you're able to fill the position that needs to be done, then great. But um, you also have to have standards for that. So you can't just have some, like if you need somebody to do a specific job, but the person that you chose doesn't meet those base requirements, then you can't necessarily give them that opportunity in that moment, but that there is a level of education that you're willing to give people as well to help them get to being qualified for those positions. Right. Yes. Uh, now, yeah, that's, okay. that's okay. correct. Now, now I, I do have a, a little bit of an issue in general with the term minority because like I, I, I know, and it's very prevalent, you know, and people use it all the time, but th- that term in, in, in itself is kind of like, I don't think anyone is minor to anybody else, you know, and it means like less people of certain kind. It, it immediately creates a barrier. It immediately creates a, a differentiation, us and them, you know. And to me, uh, like one important aspect uh, of reaching equality as human beings is, number one, to do it nonviolently within our daily lives. And it's something that is more about consciousness within people. And, you know, and that means like standing up 
of issues that are urgent and are happening, you know, like that means taking action in those issues. But at the same time, in my, if you are in a position in which you're uh, offering, uh, to me, it's important to, to value people for their quality of work and for their, how do I say it? For their um, attitude towards like a particular project you know, regardless of of anything else, right? And in this industry, it's frustrating sometimes. So I try to use language that encourages people who otherwise have been, like, neglected from other opportunities, like I have, you know? And, and you know, like, like right now in the pandemic, I've been trying to look for more work, like, you know, and, and that involves, like, you know, passing proposals and sending things. And and I feel that, you know, when people see, okay, you have an accent, where are you from? <laughs> you know, like, eh, and it's like, uh, okay, what does that have to do? You know, are you understanding me? Is that like blocking our conversation? I mean, you're trying to be nice, but at the same time like that, you know, so I try not to do that kind of stuff. You know, I try to be very concise and have very... That's why I love communicating professionally over email, because email allows you to think about it, you know, and be clear in what you're saying. So I try to do email mostly for my professional communication. Nowadays, most people text or DM, and that's fine for certain things. But I, I think like people get too reliant on that. And older people, like we used to be on the phone all the time, you know, and phone conversations have some value to them. You know, like just the human voice has something. But it also, uh, to me, it has led to some of that. It's like, oh, who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> you know, like uh, that sort of like, okay, like there's something that is already given about my quality of what I'm looking for or my job because of how I sound. And that is frustrating (laughs) sometimes, you know? So I think like, however a person looks or dresses or or what their nationality, ethnicity or background is, to me, those are important parts of who a person are but I don't want to define what those parts and what, how important those parts are for a person. You know, I just want to talk to them and see how they are, who they are as a person and what are their qualifications to do the job. And that's what I take in consideration. I don't take in consideration anything else. And I think like going back to the term minority, I think like that's a little bit misleading because I think honestly that we are crossing the majority status in the strict sense, you know, like people who are, you know, uh, I mean, because that, that is basically like a word that I think started more on a, uh, on a, you know, Anglo-Saxon kind of like a culture that says like, oh, we are the superiority. We are the, the, the majority. We're the most, even though they've never been, you know, because if you think when the English came here, like they were the minority, but for them, they were, the, you know, like, and it kind of evolved into that, you know? So I, I don't know. I think, I think like we human beings are the majority and good, honest human beings w- 
and the majority will prevail. <laughs> Us, everybody. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I, yeah, I think as a practical thing that I do, this isn't for everybody, but I know for me to make sure that I don't always end up in echo chambers, that I intentionally seek out opinions opposite to mine on the internet. So whether that's YouTube videos or I scroll a lot on Instagram, so I will try to follow or look into different people who I know have opposing opinions and then listen to what they actually say. Not what you think they're saying, but what they're actually saying under their context. So what are their definitions for certain words? And then using those definitions, how do they sit in my mind? And I, I do a lot of stuff like this pretty regularly. And sometimes I find that we're actually agreeing. We're just using different words. Sometimes I find you know what? Actually, that idea I am not here for. I do the same thing with people who are even in my own camp of like thoughts. There are some people who are, we have very similar um, belief systems, but they, to me, the way that they uh, express it or the way that they want society to express it is not the way that I would agree to express it. I'd be like, that seems a little too extremist for me or, you know, or whatever. And so I think for me, at least that's like a way that I've been able to get out of that or, or check myself personally, you know? And so I do the same thing with like audio, like when it comes to like techniques for mixing to bring this full circle, cause I'm good like that. <laughs> <laughs> but like for techniques on mixing, I'll do the same thing. I'll be like, oh, okay, well, I've always mixed this way. Okay. Well, what if I tried mixing this way? Or does the order of plugins really matter? You know, or I use this plugin, but could this maybe be better used if I broke it into two instead of doing it, you know, one hard pass with insert plugin. Right. And so I think that's, that mindset is always sort of a, a positive thing to, to. It, it really is. You know, like there's, a, there's a lot of trains of thoughts and a lot of like people like, like are fervent to one kind or not. And it's not necessarily negative, but I think like as a sound engineer, like you need to be open to try different things. And, you know, we are in a service industry. So like the point is like to get the client happy with what's happening, you know, whether the client is you or not, like, you know, like if it is for yourself, like you want to make yourself happy and be like, this is, and sometimes reaching that in, involves exploration. Like, like I think people need to be more daring and be taught to be more daring and explore more. And, and in audio is so important, but also technology has putting, put us in, a, a sort of a space in which it's very easy to uh, be confronted with too many options. So one thing that I do is I change my options, but I try to limit myself on the options that I'm going to use. So I try, you know, so for instance, like I'm very comfortable using Pro Tools. I've been using Pro Tools since it was sound tools, you know, like I've been using Pro Tools for a long time. So I'm very comfortable in the Pro Tools world. A lot of people hate Pro Tools, you know, a lot of people don't like because of the company, because of the way it does, because of the cost, whatever it is. 
but that's what I grew up using since like digital technology appears. But at the same time, I try to use other DAWs to do other things and certain projects I'll be like, okay, I'm going to work this on logic, you know, but within any DAW, now you have like thousands upon thousands of plugins and, you know, several plugins that are supposed to do the same thing. And it's good to explore them, but when you're working, sometimes it gives you a lot. So it's good to limit yourself, you know? That's one different thing about, like, working on a mixing board, on a true mixing board, is that's that those are your options. Or in a classic studio, you see, like, you had, like, three or four outboard uh, compressors, like, couple of outboard reverbs and you had to make it work and like depending on the board that you were those were your channel options and that's what you use you use the eq on the board you know like i mean yeah you could go out and yes but you didn't have a ton of options i mean you you choose the studio because of their sound and you go there and then like that's that's what they have and you use what they have you're not you don't have any other options nowadays everybody has a thousand options you know in their computer and uh, sometimes that makes it more harder because you're like, oh, what do I use? You know, and it, it, you get yeah. into choice. Yeah. So sometimes like kind of like reducing the amount of choices makes it better because like you're really focusing on using those choices in that particular session. And, uh, and you're not thinking so much about like out of these thousand things, what can I use? It's like out of this, four or five, how can I make that work for me? Yeah. So I think it's minimizing choice paralyzation. Right. I think is what they call it, is choice paralyzation, is the the act of reducing how many you have to, to a certain number. I think that helps. I think for me, like, when I first got into to sound, actually, I'm going to bring this to more recent times, <laughs> like two years ago times. <laughs> when I first got into doing this podcast, that was my issue. I was paralyzed by all the options. You know, you get online and you're like, all right, well, how do you insert, you know, thing that you want to learn, right? And there's like all these YouTube videos, all of these articles, all these books, all these people telling you how to do it, but not all of them are telling you how to do it in the same way. So then you're like, well, so-and-so said to use, you know, uh, I don't know, the focus right, 2i2, right? And then somebody said, no, get the pre-sonus, whatever their, what is it called? The audio box, you know? And then somebody's like, no, go get that. God, what's that really expensive one that everybody loves? The Apollo one interface, right? Or And you're like, how do I choose which one to get? And you're like, you know, it, it could be very daunting to make that decision. And so like, for me, I had to realize that I, that exact principle that you're talking about that I had to bring it in and limit myself and being like, no, you don't need to think about 55 million options. Just get good with the resources that you currently have. And then if you need something later on, then you can go and get that. And that was how I kind of had to address it for myself was being like, yeah, so I already have these things just use them. And then I had to go later on and I was like, oh, well, I need a better compressor. I had to buy a different compressor at one point because the one that I had, I 
didn't like. And so um, it didn't give me enough options in it. And so then I was like, okay, well, let me go get a different compressor. And then I was like, okay, now I, I got this one. And that's working great. And then it was okay, well, what about this? You know, or slowly started building specific plugins that I actually ended up using in the long term versus buying a ton of plugins, only use them for like a hot five seconds and then never see them again. I think that same principle applies there for sure. Yeah, I mean, it it goes both ways because like my girlfriend thinks that I am a little bit of a hoarder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I, I don't think I am, but uh, I do like to build upon and technology is is such a wonderful thing that you can like try something new but that's the point like trying to limit yourself within a scope of time so you don't like fall into choice paralysis uh at the same time it is fun to explore new things so reaching a balance between those two things is important you know gear wise like you know it always can keep going, but there's certain things that you like as a person and, you know, it is an expensive hobby. Hobby. No, I'm not saying hobby because it's not a hobby, but like, uh, uh, but, but gear is expensive, you know, like quality <laughs> yeah. gear is expensive, but at the same time, you understand why, you know, it is sometimes, you know, like it's like, okay, this is much better built than that and these like but at the, at the same time like companies always want to sell you something you know so so how do you choose like i think budget is number one like it's okay what is my budget you know if you're starting you know get a you know get start small you know like see if that's something that you like and then like explore more you know as you do things you're gonna grow up and like get something better you know, or try something better. But a lot of the times also, like you might spend like $4,000 on a piece of gear and you're like, ah, I really didn't like it. You know, so we, the good thing is like you can sell it and then buy something else. And some things, uh, you really like some aspect of it and you don't some other aspect, you know, so you kind of compromise. And a lot of the times, uh, it is whatever is there. So what I encourage people to do is learn the concepts, learn to listen, like learn to understand what is happening. And then like that way you can build in your head objective to change what is happening to what you want it to sound like. And then in your head, define from the tools that you know what uh, can accomplish, how can that be accomplished? So learning what compression does instead of looking for XX compressor. All the compressors are going to do the same. And, and like the thing is like, it's diminutive. A 300 piece of gear, $300 piece of gear now is way better than a 5,000 gear piece of gear of 10 years ago. You know, and now... Obviously, you can go to a 10,000 piece of gear now, which is really good, but it's not going to be extremely better than a 300 piece of gear. You know, like the more you spend, the less added quality you have in terms of sound quality, I'm talking. Now, there's other things like build quality, and that has nothing to do of how good something is going to sound at the end of the day, because like 
you can have a small Mackie mixer and have an awesome recording with it, you know, if you know what you're doing. If, if you understand what's happening and you know how to move, you know, how to place a mic, how to have correct gain settings and how to record it correctly. You can have a beautiful recording with like a, you know, $600 piece of gear, you know, but also, uh, so like the important part is that to understand the concepts. And once you understand the concepts and you apply them in different experiences, uh, then gear becomes something fun. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I spend a lot of my money in gear. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> but but that's different, though. <laughs> you also learn what what has like a good it's a, it's a sound investment for yourself. You know, like a high quality mic. It's a sound investment. I think that doesn't mean that you can't make a good recording with a $100 mic. You can get a $100 mic and get a beautiful recording, but a high-quality mic is going to make a huge impact. But now there's really good mics for $200, you know, and and that's beautiful. Yeah. So I guess the principle that I would apply to this is that spending more money on something doesn't necessarily always equate to it being better for you as an individual. And so we have to, as individuals, weigh those pros and cons for ourselves. Like if you need to focus more on the principles of gear, the principles of compression, the principles of mixing before you dive deep into the world of, you know, buying more expensive gear, or then that's what you, that's where you should start, right? Versus, oh, I already have an understanding of it. And I know how I would utilize buying insert piece of gear, right? Like those mindsets are different. And so I think as individuals, if we approach it from that place of what's going to best serve me on an individual level versus what other people say is the best for me is different. Right. Addressing that. And then putting your money into those specific spots. Yeah, I would say like learn to read spec sheets. Read spec sheets? Oh, yeah. those are so boring sometimes. You know, like learn to read spec sheets because like like re- read what they mean because that's how you can compare, you know, like really truly compare how something is better than other things, like in terms of quality, sound quality. But sound quality, most of the equipment that is out there is pretty good. Like sound quality compared, you know, I grew up like doing demos on, on four track Task and Porta Studios. And in that time, it was a huge difference, you know, if you had a Porta Studio and you went and recorded on uh, half an inch reel to reel, or you went and recorded on one inch reel to reel. And a huge, humongous difference if you went, if you were lucky enough to work on a two inch 24 track or 16 track, even better, you know, like a two inch 16 track was the cream of the crop sound wise, you know, like you, I mean, that's, that was, and it's a huge difference from one to the other. And if you compare like at that time, I don't know, like an old Soundcraft board, you compare it to a Trident or you compare it to an SSL or an Eve, you get like this huge difference of sound, you know, 
but also the interaction. So for instance, like when uh, automation and SSL boards like started to become more prevalent in the late 80s, you know, a lot of people gave away or sold their needs at really low prices, you know, because they were like, oh, the Neve is great, but it doesn't have automation, you know? So, uh, you know, and nowadays that Neve cost those old Neve, like 80, 85 or 86, like, like cost two times what an SSL of the time like cost. But, you know, facilities and studios had that thought, oh, this is better, it's quieter, it's not as noisy. When the digital technology came up, it was like, everybody was like, yes, there is no hiss. There is no hiss. It's quiet. And that was like a thing. Like people was like, that's so much better. CDs are so much better. They don't get scratched. Quote unquote. <laughs> As much. Well, you, know? you still scratch up those CDs. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, at the time, and then like things like MP3s came up, you know, so the MP3 is more convenient. Having automation is more convenient. And if you read the spec sheets, you know, like, yeah, uh, a CD has much better quality than a vinyl, but still some people love the vinyl, you know, and and there is no, I mean, like, physically, measurably, CD has a lot of better qualities than a vinyl, right? It has more headroom. It has a wider frequency response. It has a less self-noise. Objectively, is a better medium to record music. But people s- still like the vinyl, you know, because it has a different type of recording. And that has an impact, you know, like the fact that it's analog versus digital. But digital also has come way, l- way ahead. And the digital of today is a different digital than the digital of the 90s, right? So now we're in a much level. Like if you buy, like what I'm saying is like if you buy an SQ mixer, like an Allen and Heat SQ, you know, like a small mixer or a, or a, let's say like an X32 or an XR, you know, like, like a little Behringer XR that costs like $400, you know, you control it with the iPad. And you buy an SSL a mixing board, you know, like an L500 that costs as much as a house. Nowadays, the difference in quality is minimal. It's not the same difference in quality than recording in a Porta Studio and recording on two inch, right? It's way more. And, and if, speaking about interfaces, like if you buy a Carbon or you buy a, a UAD Apollo, like the difference in quality to buying a Scarlet is, I mean, there is a lot of difference. And if there is, I mean, like, like the Apollo or, the, you know, or like even higher end, like if you go to a Burl, uh, like there is a lot of differences in the way it's built, in the way it's processed, the, in the way you can use that device, in the longevity, in the response of the company, in like, uh, there's uh, many reasons why a Burl or a UAD costs more than a Scarlet. But the sound quality is not that different. And you can do a great recording with either, with either one of those. Right. Right. I agree with that. I think that 
there are a lot of times where I'm not a super like huge like gearhead. Like I like gear well enough, it's fine, it's great, whatever. And I and I know gear, but I'm not like obsessed with gear, right? Like there's some people who are like obsessed with gear. But as somebody who's not obsessed with gear, <laughs> <laughs> I find that that principle is it, it's 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 a lot about a feeling, right? Like a lot of people for example, they love the analog sound because of the way it makes them feel, right? That's why people get obsessed with like these old school boards or external racks of different gear, right? Is they're like, but it has a certain feel to it, and that's why it sounds better. Like the imperfections to them are what makes the audio feel good to them. Versus, you know, you go too far in digital and you're like, yeah, but it doesn't have the same imperfections, so it doesn't make me feel the same way, right? Like, you listen to, like, old albums from, like, the 70s, and it's like, you can hear the dust, right, <laughs> in the recording from it landing on, you know, whatever it was. And and that's, like, ingrained into the audio. Like, you're never going to get that out. Versus with digital, you know, you... you you can record and not have that that sound of dust, that one speck that just comes out of in the audio quality, right? I mean, I guess you could if you wanted to add it in artificially, I guess. But you know, like generally speaking, that doesn't really exist in that way. What? What? You you sat forward while I was saying that, like you had like such a strong opinion. <laughs> uh, I, I think this is what happens, you know, because I lived through it. Okay, digital came and everybody was obsessed with the quality of digital. Mm -hmm. But then they realized that there were all these things that were imperfections that made recording music more fun and better. Mm -hmm. And nowadays we add it up. Like when you open a plugin, it's adding all of these imperfections. The artificially is modeling all of the things that the the old school and now everybody's obsessed with the, the old gear, you know? And I mean, it does, it does make a different feel. And that's, that's what people like, but still like, like the best plugins. I mean, I like the universal audio plugins. They sound really good and, and it gives you certain versatility that, that is kind of what I was used to when working with audio in, in the analog days. You know, you, you create a, a chain and you go into your recording with a sound and that's the sound, you know, and that, kind of like also limits, like you're trying to process and experiment going into your recording medium, not after, you know? And now like they have this uh, DAW called Luna that emulates a mixing board, you know, like the sound of the mixing board. And so it emulates crosstalk and it emulates a hiss, it emulates like all of the things and you put the tape machine model. So it emulates all of the things that the tape used to do, yeah. but then it becomes optional. Like, it's like, do I want it or do I don't? You know, it, it becomes a choice. And that, that goes back to the choice limitations, like in the sense that you have so many choices. It's like before those choices were like took a longer time and a more thought to them than now. It's kind of like, oh, I can change it on the whim and just see how it goes. And there's no, no necessity, no necessary, like one is better than the other. But sometimes I see my students like get overwhelmed with the amount of choices and it's just pick one and go with it. You know, if you definitely don't achieve what you were thinking, but it, but that's the thing. Think about what you want to do. Don't just put it in. 
think about what you want to do and then pick from a certain amount of options what would be the best to do that. If you have never used it, pick one, whichever it is, but just use that until you achieve it. If you can't achieve it, go for a different option. But don't just put one and go through the presets until it sounds good, you know? Like, just think about what you want to do and think what's the best tool for you to accomplish that and then move to do it. Right. Just just choosing for the sake of choosing or choosing aimlessly and not having any sort of direction or specific path. Okay, so you keep bringing up the fact that you have been doing audio like pre-digital revolution, (laughs) which I guess kind of made me think, (laughs) how do you feel? I got it. I got it. (laughs) How do you feel like the audio industry has changed over time in this respect to women audio engineers? Because I feel like that's been talked about a lot more recently. And I don't know why I thought of it, but it made me think of it. So I'm I'm posing the question to you now, (laughs) which wasn't a very smooth segue. Sorry. (laughs) I think it has changed a lot. I think it has, especially in the last decade, uh, there's been a lot more opportunities and visibility uh, for women that uh, work in this profession than before that. I think technology and the size of the industry has to do with it. I think our moment in time has to do with it. Uh, and I've seen a lot of changes. Uh, there's still a lot of ground to cover. There's still inequality uh, in pay, inequality in opportunities. But it is much better than when I started, I feel. And there's been like a lot of, uh, monumental people in the history of recording that has been starting to get more acknowledgement and become uh, kind of like figures that someone starting can look up to. And there's a lot of groups uh, of uh, people trying to make this industry more inclusive, like you, like these podcast is is an opportunity to do that. And it is very important to show uh, people who are starting that it can be done and that it it is a profession. I mean, when I started, like, you know, I mean, people in my family sometimes, not my parents specifically, but some people I will say like, well, when when are you going to pick a profession? (laughs) You know, I already have a profession. What are you talking about? (laughs) You know, but like, it's not uh, nowadays, like I think, you know, there's places to study. There's an array of opportunities and it's becoming, I mean, it has, it's kind of like a double sword because like it's becoming, uh, more institutionalized in the sense that, you know, like if you're going for certain aspects of this industry, they require you to have had a certain level of education, formal education. Because now there's those opportunities for for people to go and educate themselves, you know. But that has a cost. Yeah. And it has, like, it's not free. And it requires some effort. And it requires money. And it requires, you know. So so 
it is better, but there's still a lot of ground to cover in order to make it more balanced, I say, you know, like an equitable. So in that change, what do you think the biggest challenge was back then, I guess, in like the 80s or 90s-ish versus the biggest challenges of today for women who want to get into the audio industry or who are working within the audio industry? You know, I professionally started in the 90s, okay. you know, so, but in Colombia, we were like, I mean, now it's more equal, like technology is more expanded throughout the world. At that time, it was more concentrated. It was harder to reach that technology, right? So I think that's a big change. Like regardless of where you are, you can and you have access to technology that allows you to start. As I said, like uh, when I started, like I had to clean the bathrooms and clean like the puke of the clients that came like, you know, to, you know, I don't know, like, uh, like it was a different uh, uh, environment, you know, and some places like I had to say like, okay, I got to leave this because there's no future. I mean, I'm not getting paid and I'm just like cleaning the bathroom and bringing coffee and that's not what I want to do. I mean, I've, I mean, it's all great that I get to see what they're doing, but like, it's not going to leave me. That's why, like, I encourage people to be entrepreneurial. So for me, I embraced digital technology very early. And that was like a big plus in my career. So I got a loan and I bought this digital board that was like really small. It's, it's called the Yamaha Pro Mix 01. You know, it was like the first available digital board. And it was like, you know, compared to other boards that were going around, it was really clean. And it was, you had compressors on it. I could carry it. I embraced that at that point. It made me, it made me be and learn how to use a piece of gear into making it into a business that I can sell. Right. So I bought that board and then I bought a dad machine and I would record directly to the dad machine live. No multi-track. When most people in Colombia were recording on a Porta studio on a four track that, which is what I used to use on an eight track, you know, on a cassette. And the difference was huge. All of these things that, that I was talking about, like the quality, the frequency response from a Porta Studio 8 channel on a cassette to recording digitally from a digital board into a digital medium like the dad was huge. And I started playing that on the radio when or the recordings will, will go to the radio stations, to the independent radio station. And there was a program that they did every Sunday it was Sunday at 11 p.m. when nobody listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was the local hour in the national radio system. I made friends with a person who ran the program and I will go and I will show them the recordings of the bands that I was doing, you know, and I was recording. I will charge like 30 or 40 bucks, you know, uh, to do a recording. I will go wherever the band rehearsed plug my board, plug the dad and record what they played, you know, and then go to the radio and play it, you know, on the local hour. 
and uh, people started calling in. How is how is this sound so clean? Because all of the other bands that were going to that, like they will record. I mean, the ones that had like labels and like had like some support will go to professional studios, and that sounded great, you know. But like compared to most of the demos that were played, like my quality was so much better because I embraced that piece of technology. So it's funny, like, you know, and and I made it for myself because I was like, that's better than trying to get a job because nobody's giving me a job. So I'd rather like build something for myself, you know, or like in the life space, like, you know, I would go to a place and be like, do you want to have live bands? You know, you just need to pay me for the sound. And I will book the bands for free, but I'll, you know, like they will pay me for the sound. You know, it's like, okay, like you got to invest this more, but then the bands will bring people and they'll make money, you know? Do you think that's part of like, I don't know, your, your, so, okay. The ability to do that, like to, to find ways to think outside the box to get what you want right done or accomplished do you think that's like your greatest strength i guess or personality or character i don't know or whatever or to get be able to do that because i know some people they they don't have that kind of flexibility you know (laughs) or forethought maybe i i think it grows out of necessity i mean at least at least in me it grew out of necessity you know, like if the industry is not going to give me an opportunity, I'm going to make an opportunity for myself, you know, and learn how to move in those environments. And, and like, you know, like learning how to say no is hard. I mean, to me, it has been harder than learning how to build something, you know, because I built something and people want it. And, and learning how to say no took me more effort than to build to do that. I think, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think my strength is to put people together at work and look for opportunities in which we can put stuff together and make it work. That's why I love like integration or I love like setting up and I love gear, you know, like I love, uh, oh, how can I make these work with these and do this in a way that is more practical for something, right? And I, I don't know. I've been lucky. I've, I've had many iterations, but I, I still tweak all the time how I do things. Like, uh, you know, like, oh, I need this or there's this thing new. Sometimes I wash clean and I do something different, you know. But, uh, you know, my professional life has given me that opportunity to integrate, to like say, oh, this will work with that or this person will work with this person very well and we can do this, you know word of mouth like people like say oh like you know call Juno Juno can help you do this you know and I don't know I I, I like that I like that aspect of it do you think that's a large reason why I guess you've kind of been able to I guess maneuver into sort of like systems tech thing and also being able to like work with audio dealers is because you kind of already have that love and um, enjoyment of gear and understanding gear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like that, that helps me, 
you know, and has helped me. I mean, like the, the opportunities in audio are very wide. You know, there's so many things. And sometimes I feel like uh, depending on your personality, it's better that you dedicate yourself to one thing. But for my personality, I, I like to do many things. I like to be involved in projects of different qualities and different sizes and different spaces. I get bored easily, uh, like working on a single thing, you know? Uh, so I, I like doing, I like the variety that it has brought to my life to be able to do this. And, and that's, that's, that's an aspect that people need. You know, people is like having ideas and they don't really know how to uh, implement them. So being that person that says like, Hey, I can help you implement that. Like, let's narrow it down. Let's figure out, you know, and can, can you pay me? <laughs> yes. Okay. How much, <laughs> you know? So the how much and what's the value of work is, is something else that I encourage uh, new people to realize how important it is because for a long time I worked for nothing. I just did it because I love doing it or, or for very little money, you know? And when I realized like how important it is uh, to be able for a person to make a living doing what they like. Uh, so I encourage people to, find out their worth, like, and make it a balance to commensurate to the experience, you know? <laughs> yeah. Got you. Got you. That's really cool. I guess at this point, I only have one other question because we're almost at the time. So what, I guess, advice or like final thoughts would you like to leave the audience with? I would say just go and do it. <laughs> Whatever it is, just go and do it. Just start Figure out how to start and follow the path and go and do it. At some point, like you're going to be doing so much that you just want to like go and lay down, but that's fine too. So learn how to say no and learn to uh, value time for yourself as well, because that's the other side of this coin, especially when people start having a certain level of success. For themselves, and I'm not talking about like success being in the charts because that's not what this is about. And only a very small percentage of people make that kind of success, you know, or earning an award. Like that's not what I'm talking. Success is being centered in your own life and like being able to maintain uh, your basic necessities and do what you want to do when you want to do it. And part of success is not only earning money, it's also having time for yourself. So it, that balance, it's important that people find that balance. You know, go and do it. And when you're tired of doing it and you're starting to be successful, learn to have a balance in which you go out of what you do and give time to yourself to evolve, to think, to read, to... Uh, I don't know, watch Netflix and, and eat popcorn. I don't know. Like whatever it is that you like, you know, uh, as a hobby, like do it. Sometimes those hobbies are going to become professions as well, <laughs> you know, but wherever you go, like try to find that balance and try to be successful in that sense. Cover your basic needs, give time to yourself and work on whatever you're doing, go and do it. Got it. 
That's a, that's a really great piece of advice. I know a lot of times people overlook that aspect of like investing in themselves. That's what I'm going to call that. Learn to invest in yourself, invest in your career, but also invest in yourself. I, at least that's what I got out of what you said. Yeah, totally. Okay. Wait, wait, I just want to make sure. I was like, wait, I didn't know if that was what you were trying to say. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciated it. And this was a great talk. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Tangela, for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited. And I wish you all the success in the world. And this is going places I know, wherever it takes you. And uh, helping people be given the opportunity to talk about their experiences and giving people the opportunity to listen to other people experiences is a very important thing. And what you're doing is great. Thank you for having me.